As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark 1, 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way we live our lives? How many of us can say we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestled alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what did these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our lives, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible Study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsoulis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. So last week, we were continuing our journey through the Acts of the Apostles, and what we saw was the beginning of what's known as Paul's second missionary journey. So just as a little refresher, Paul began his second mission, and as he was carrying on his mission in Philippi, we are told that he met Lydia, St. Lydia, and her house was kind of the foundation of the church in Philippi, or the home church, if you will, within Philippi. And while Paul was there, along with Silas, his companion, because remember, he has since separated from his prior companions, and now continued this new missionary journey with Silas and Timothy, who was also brought into the fold, along with St. Luke, as we mentioned last week. We hear that after St. Paul cast a demon out of a girl that gave her the abilities to soothsay or see the future, or tell fortunes rather, he was then in prison because the owners of the slave girl were angry at him because now they saw that they had no way to make money since their means of profit was now gone. So Paul is then beaten along with Silas, cast in the prison, and in the middle of the night, we hear that Paul and Silas are making ceaseless prayer, singing hymns of praise to the Lord, and while that occurs, what happens? Well, we heard that the Lord sends an earthquake, opens all of the prison cells, and allows for them to be free. And when this happened, well, what did we hear? Well, we heard that the prison guard saw that they were freed, and he attempts to kill himself because, again, he was afraid of the ramifications of the actions that had been occurred. If he let them go, well, then his masters are going to come and call for his life because he failed what he was supposed to be doing. And it was then that St. Paul reveals himself to the prison guard showing that he's still there, along with all of the prisoners, and it is through accepting Christ that we see in this moment, the prison guard and his whole family are baptized and become Christians, and the sign of this was the hospitality that they showed to Paul and Silas. And the last note of what we saw last week, which was significant, was a revelation that Paul is a Roman. He proclaims himself to be a Roman in defense of the actions of these Roman authorities, be against the, the actions of these Roman authorities, rather. Because we see that when they send police to the prison guard and say to release Paul and Silas because now there's no threat, we hear Paul say that they are Romans, and they were treated shamefully without a trial, being beaten in public and then in prison. So with that revelation of Paul and Silas being Romans, well, what did we see? Well, we saw ultimately they were vindicated, but we also saw they were done away with in the sense that the Romans asked them to leave Philippi. And so they returned to Lydia's house. And when they return to Lydia's house, they glorify the brethren and continue their missionary journey. So where we're picking up this week in chapter 17 
is a continuation of the second missionary journey where Paul, Silas, Timothy, and all of his companions are continuing not only to proclaim the gospel, but as they go into the lands that have already received the gospel, they also proclaim the proclamation of the Council of Jerusalem. So with all of my preamble out of the way, let's delve into chapter 17 of the Acts of the Apostles. Now when they had passed through Amphipolios and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and for three weeks he argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim you, who I proclaim you, is the Christ. <clears throat> and some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and none of few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked fellows of the rabble, they gathered the crowd, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, crying, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard this. And when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So what we see here is that as St. Paul and his company are continuing their journey, they come to Thessalonica. And when they arrive there, we're told that there was a synagogue of the Jews. So as we mentioned last week, as we're going through Gentile lands, there are certain places where the Jewish population is small, as in Philippi, where there is no synagogue, and yet here in Thessalonica, what do we see? Well, we see that there is a synagogue of the Jews. So we hear that Paul, as was his custom, went first to the synagogue of the Jews to proclaim the gospel. And we're also told that he was there for three weeks, arguing with them from the scriptures. So. It's important to note here that in highlighting that he's there for three weeks arguing with them from the scriptures, well, what are these scriptures that Paul is proclaiming? Well, when we think about the gospel, we think about the four books that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet, at this point, there is no written gospel. The gospel, rather, is the good news, the proclamation of Christ's victory over sin and death. And so the scriptures that are highlighted here aren't these four books that we read every day within our tradition. Rather, the scriptures that are being highlighted here are the Old Testament, the law, the prophets. So what St. Paul is doing in arguing with the people from the scriptures is he's showing the revelation of Christ using the writings of the prophets, using the writings of the law. And so he's speaking to them in a context that they understand. He's leveling with them using a language that they can comprehend. And this is going to be important because this is kind of a motif we're going to see throughout this whole chapter. And so we hear in verse 3 that he continues explaining and proving that was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim you, is the Christ. So again, in St. Paul's proclamation of Jesus being the Christ, well, what is he using? Well, he's using as the basis of his argument the scriptures. He's using as the basis of his argument the same texts, the same scrolls that are being read each day within the synagogue by these devout Jews. And we hear the result of this is some of them were persuaded, 
and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of devout Greeks, so that is Gentiles, and not a few of the leading women. So again, we see that women are being highlighted here as being a distinct group who receive the gospel along with these God-fearing Jews, rather these God-fearing Gentiles, along with the God-fearing Jews. But we also hear in verse 5 that some of the Jews were jealous. And what did they do in their jealousy? Well, they went and they took some wicked people from the crowd, and they all gathered together and ended up setting the whole city in an uproar. And when this mob is created, well, what do they do? We're told they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring out Paul and Silas to the people. So again, we see that a mob is created. There's jealousy, which is animating this mob. So this mob isn't being animated by any righteous emotion or any righteous motivation. Rather, we see it's the spirit of jealousy that's animating it. And as the mob continues to form, they devolve to the point where, with violence, they end up coming to this Jason's house. And we can assume from the text here that this Jason is the person who has been housing the Christians within Thessalonica. And when they arrive there, well, what do they see? They can't find Paul and Silas, the two people who they're actually in search of. And the further evidence that they're being animated by this negative spirit of jealousy is the fact that even though they don't find Paul and Silas, well, what do they do? Well, we hear that when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason along with some of the brethren before the city authorities, crying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So note here that what's their reaction? Well, the reaction is to drag these innocent men before the authorities. And what's the accusation that they make here? Well, the accusation is that these men have turned the world upside down. And yet, pay close attention to what we were told earlier, is we were told that the mob was, was threatening, rather, to turn the city upside down. So we see within the actions of the mob that chaos is being introduced into the city. And yet, what's the accusation that the mob is making of these two innocent men? rather, the brethren along with Jason? Well, it's that they have been turning the world upside down. And Jason here is well, responsible for receiving these Christians, these people who have been doing this. Because they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, is what they say. So that's the second part of this accusation. Because they proclaim that the Christians are saying there is another king that is Jesus. And note here that in the use of the word king, there's a very specific connotation that's being highlighted because within a Roman historical context, kings aren't seen as a good thing. King is one of the few titles that the good Caesars did not hold because kings within Roman history were seen as tyrants. So, in calling this Jesus king, what do we see? Well, we see that the people are accusing the Christians of acting out against the decrees of Caesar and proclaiming that there is this ruler who's claiming himself to be a king that they are to follow. Now, if we paid close attention to what the Christians have been saying throughout the entire Acts narrative, we'll see that this is false. False. Because the Christians haven't been saying, reject your authorities, reject the Romans, and follow Jesus, your earthly king, who's going to liberate you. That's been totally counter to the point of the proclamations that have been made. Because in the eyes of the Christians, they're not looking to an earthly kingdom. Rather, they're looking towards the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. So there's never been a proclamation of Jesus coming as an earthly king. And yet, what do we see here? Well, we see that this mob is saying otherwise. 
And so the mob has turned Thessalonica upside down. The mob has brought Thessalonica into this uproar. And yet we see that they're accusing the Christian Jews. So note how they are reacting to Christians. They're not reacting to them and accepting them. Rather, because they're fueled by jealousy and because they're fueled by rage and resentment, what are they doing? Well, once again, they're taking those who are part of the church and they're persecuting them, not because of anything they've actually done, but because they're being governed now by these negative spirits and they're giving themselves over to them. And so we hear that the people and the authorities are disturbed when they hear this, and yet finding nothing really to accuse Jason and the brethren of, they waited until the coast was clear, so until things were secure, and they take Jason and the rest and they let them go. And this is further vindication that they didn't do anything wrong to begin with. Because again, the people who these unrighteous Jews were going around and accusing aren't even the people that they brought before the tribunal because they brought Jason and some of the brethren. And yet, who is it that they actually wanted to do away with? Well, they wanted to do away with Paul and Silas. And yet, Paul and Silas were nowhere to be found. And it's important to pay attention to the spirit that's animating this because whenever we see mobs form, well, what happens? Well, we see a crowd of people acting as one in unison, and usually we see chaos ensue along with them. And if we see chaos ensuing within a crowd, well, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that's animating that crowd? And specifically within this text, well, we're told exactly what the spirit is that's animating the mob is the spirit that's animating the actions of this mob is a spirit of jealousy, a spirit of resentment, and ultimately manifest as a spirit of rage. Because in the same way that the leaders of the people resented Jesus, and we saw the manifestation of that resentment play out within their offering him up and riling up a mob so that he may be crucified, we see here that his church is being treated in the same way. And yet, what do we see over and over again? We see that even though the church is being persecuted, God is continually there vindicating his church by revealing truth. Because even though we hear that the people and the authorities in the city are disturbed by what they heard, they couldn't find anything to actually condemn Jason and the brethren of. And so, they had to let them go. In the same way as last chapter, we saw that Paul and Silas were vindicated even though they were treated shamefully, even though they were beaten and imprisoned. Because ultimately, what is this showing us? Well, this is showing us that even if in this life we're not vindicated, God is the one who's continually vindicating his people if they are living a life in him. Because our vindication isn't people within this world, within this age, saying, oh, you were right and we were wrong. Rather, our vindication is revealed in living life fully in Christ. So moving on to verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Borea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue now those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Borea, also, they came there too, stirring up an inciting crowd. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command 
for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So after the incident with Jason and the brethren within Thessalonica, what do we see? Well, we see that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Boria. Boria. And what's the significance here? Well, the significance is that this mob has now been created. And this mob is out for blood. We see that Jason and the brethren have been vindicated, but it's not going to be easy for them to vindicate Paul and Silas, since Paul and Silas are the ones that they were truly accusing of all of these things. And so, what happens? Well, the time is not yet right for them to offer up their lives. And so the Spirit continues to guide the church so that the church sends Paul and Silas away so they can continue their missionary journey. And we hear that when they went to Beora, they arrive and they went immediately to the Jewish synagogue. So again, even though we're in a Gentile context, we hear here that there is a synagogue. So there is a substantial number of Jews living in this region. And in verse 11, we see that there's a difference between the Jews of Thessalonica and the Jews of Beora, because we hear that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And what's the sign of their nobility? Well, the sign of their nobility is that they receive the word with all eagerness. And what's the manifestation of this eagerness that we see? Well, they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So, again, what did we see when St. Paul was in Thessalonica? Well, we saw that he was speaking directly to the Jews from the scriptures, from what we know today as the Old Testament. Because again, he's speaking to them within the context they could understand. They didn't have the four Gospels that we have today. Rather, when we hear that St. Paul is proclaiming the Gospel, what he's proclaiming is Christ's victory. He's proclaiming his victory over sin and death. And to do this, as we mentioned in the last section, he is revealing to the people how this has been proclaimed and prefigured through the prophets, through the whole of the Old Testament, and through the law. And so what do we see here that marks the nobility of the Jews here? Well, it's the fact that they receive the word with eagerness. And not only do they receive the word with eagerness, but we see that they continue to meditate upon the scriptures to further understand the truth of the revelation of Jesus being the Christ. And this is a really interesting lesson for each and every one of us to pay attention to, because this is what we're called to do when we approach the scriptures. We're not called to approach them in kind of the sanitized or analytical way. We're called to approach them so that way we can learn how to know, love, and serve our Lord. And it's through our contemplation over the scriptures, the whole of them, that we see constant revelations of who Jesus is and how we are called to relate to him. But if we don't use this Christ-centered lens to approach the scriptures, well, what happens? Well, we approach the scriptures then with some other motivation in heart. And if we continue to do that, well, what can happen? Well, we can grasp on the aspects of the scriptures and forget and miss the whole of what they're trying to reveal to us. Is the whole of what they're trying to reveal to us is the revelation of the gospel, the revelation of salvation that's now offered to the whole of creation through the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And so all of the scriptures throughout the entire corpus of what we know as the Bible are ultimately, from our perspective, leading us towards him in the revelation that we've seen through the gospel. So that's an important note because if we see here that what makes these Jews noble is the fact that they continue to have this yearning and they continue to meditate upon the scriptures, well, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that if we're receiving the gospel, if we're to call ourselves Christians, how are we supposed to approach the scriptures? 
we're not supposed to approach them in a sanitized manner or systematic manner. Rather, we're called to approach them with an open heart and a desire to know, love, and serve Christ. And if we approach the scriptures in this way, well, what do we find? Well, we find that every single time that we delve into them, there will be something new that reveals itself to us. And ultimately, whatever that is, if we desire to apply it to our life, we will find that by embodying it, we will ultimately be living life in Christ. And so we see that the result of this is that many of them therefore believed, and not few of the Greek women from high standing as well as men. So it's not only the Jews who received the word of the gospel, but it's these God-fearing Jews who all God-fearing Greeks who also received the gospel. And yet, even though this seems like a success story, that the church is now growing within Beoria, we hear that not all is well, because similarly to as we saw a few chapters ago when Paul was in Antioch of Pisidia, we see that those Jews from Thessalonica, when they learned that Paul was proclaiming the word of the gospel in Beoria, came in search of him. So again, similarly to how we saw in Antioch of Pisidia, where the mob continued to track down Paul and in that narrative stoned him and left him for dead, we see that the mob comes again in pursuit of him. And so they come down from Thessalonica, and as they're coming, they stir up and incite a crowd. And what do we hear here? Well, we hear that some of the brethren, when they heard about this, immediately they sent Paul off on his way to be seated. But Silas and Timothy remained there. So, again, as was mentioned earlier, we saw Paul was stoned when the mob came from Antioch of Poseidon. And rather than allowing for this to happen again, what's the response of the brethren? Well, the brethren, guided by the Holy Spirit, because remember, the Holy Spirit is the animating force behind the whole of the church, as we've seen with Acts, because the Holy Spirit is our main character for all intents and purposes. As the Spirit guides them, we see that they send Paul away, and they send him off into the sea. And yet, what do we also see here? Well, we see that this new church in Beoria is not left alone, because we hear that Silas and Timothy stayed with them for a time. So not all is lost. And this is a very beautiful way of showing us how the Spirit works within the church. Because even though, okay, we see that the church has started here, and then all of a sudden we see this group of Jews come in search of Paul and Silas and force them out, well, what do we see? We see that not only is Paul's life spared, so this isn't the end for Paul, but we also see that this young church in Beoria is not left totally abandoned because Silas and Timothy remain with them, presumably to found within their church presbyters to continue to foster and guide them. And so we see those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they depart. So now Paul is separated from his companions. Paul's in Athens. Timothy and Silas are still in Beoria, fostering the church and growing it there. And even though we see the separation, what do we see ultimately? Well, we see ultimately that God is preserving his church, God is fostering his church, and God is continuing to grow his church. So even though we see this mob is continuing to be animated by their resentments and their anger, well, they're not going to win the day. These negative animating spirits have been defeated by Christ in his resurrection. And so even though, as was mentioned, this crowd comes all the way from Thessalonica in search of Paul and Silas, they do not win. Rather, we see the Spirit is winning it. 
the church has now been established in this land. The gospel has been proclaimed, and not only proclaimed on deaf ears, but proclaimed and received by a vast majority of the people. And even though this mob attempted to force the gospel away by sending away Paul, we see that advocates of the gospel are still left behind to foster and grow the church. And so even though we might see this as a failure or a loss on the part of the church in Bedoria, we see that God, in the nuanced ways that he reveals himself to his people, has truly revealed that this is a victory on his part, on the part of the gospel. Because even though Paul is now cast away, there's a separation. But we see that the seeds of faith are still planted. And those seeds will continue to grow into the manifestation of the church, the body of Christ, in this land. And this is important for us to understand because the Spirit works in the same way within our life. When we look at events that are occurring in our lives, it's easy to fixate on the negative and say, well, everything's lost. Look at the calamity that's surrounding me. There's no hope for salvation. And yet, what's the constant prayer that we see throughout the scriptures? Well, we see throughout the scriptures that God's people continually cry out to him because he is the source of their salvation. And within the revelation of Christ rising from the dead, well, what do we see? Well, we see that even in the darkest of places, and even in the darkest of moments, that is death itself, there is the hope of the resurrection. There is always a light. And it's through entering into that darkened place that we see it's transfigured, it's dissolved, it has no bond, because we believe as Christians that Christ is risen. So when we look at the whole of our life, and we look at the various paths that we're going down and all of the nuances that are going on around us, we can become overwhelmed. Why? Because sometimes there are too many variables for us to track. And oftentimes, we find that we're blind in too many ways to the variables we should be paying attention to. But rather than giving up and rather than feeling hopeless in these moments, what are we called to do? We're called to take a step back. We're called to orient ourselves towards Christ and say, Thy will be done. And when we do that, what do we find? We find that even in the worst of situations, If we are orienting ourselves towards him, he will reveal the path forward to us, even though it may be hard for us to see. And even if we don't have Christ at the center of our heart in that moment, we can see later on in life that if we didn't utterly perish, there was a path that was laid for us that we happened upon is Christ. If we call ourselves his, is continually there interceding on our behalf, leading us towards salvation. So this is the example that we see here. Because, again, objectively speaking, this seems like a failure. This seems like a loss. Those who are enemies of the gospel have come in, and now they've forced Paul out while the church is new here. And yet, there are two revelations of glory that take place. First. The church is left with advocates who will continue to foster her and establish her in this land. And second, Paul is sent off so that, as we'll see in the next section, he is able to evangelize a new land that has not received the gospel. So moving on to verse 16, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who chanced to be there. Some also of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers met him. And some said, What would this babbler say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, 
May we know what this new teaching is which you present. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time in nothing except telling of or hearing something new. So before we carry on into St. Paul's sermon that he gives in the Areopagus, let's break down a little bit of what's happening here. So we hear that while Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas to arrive in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And it's important to note here what the spirit is, because as we've seen over and over again, even though in the text it's not capitalized, What's the animating spirit of St. Paul? It's not something detached from God. Ultimately, we've seen in all of St. Paul's actions and motivations, the spirit which is animating him along in his ministry is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's provoked within him. What provokes this? Well, he looks around, he sees that the city is full of idols. So Athens is full of idolatry. So for a little more context, what does this mean? Well, this means that Athens is totally centered on the worship of foreign gods. And so, Paul, being led by the spirit of the one true God, is provoked by this. He's disturbed by this in some way. So, what do we hear him do? Well, we don't hear immediately he goes and smashes all of the idols of the pagans, is what would the result of that be? Well, the result of that would be death, immediately. Rather, what is Paul here to do? Well, we see in verse 17 exactly what St. Paul is here to do. Because he goes and he argues in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. So again, we see that St. Paul is here to proclaim the gospel. So rather than going around and smashing idols, what do we see him do? Well, we see him go and proclaim the gospel first to the people who would hypothetically be most receptive of it. And he doesn't stop here, as we hear that he also goes into the marketplace every day with those who chance to be there and proclaims the gospel to them as well. And so in verse 18, we hear some also of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers met him. So here's two groups of philosophical thought who are meeting St. Paul while he's proclaiming the gospel and begin to question him. And so, in the questioning that we hear of the people who are chancing upon St. Paul as he's proclaiming the gospel in the marketplace is, well, what would this babbler say? What is he babbling on about, basically? And we hear that others say he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he preaches Jesus and the resurrection. So we see that there's even further confusion here for the Greeks because while Paul is proclaiming Jesus, in Jesus' resurrection, in Greek, Ionostasis, well, what is the response of the Greeks here? Well, the Greeks have no concept of the resurrection. That's a Jewish concept that we've been talking about. And so when St. Paul is preaching Jesus and Ionostasis, what are they thinking? Well, they're thinking that St. Paul is proclaiming these two deities, one masculine and one feminine. Jesus, and Anastasis. So, rather than understanding what he's proclaiming, because again, he's proclaiming the gospel to them in a language that they're not ready to comprehend, they assume that, well, he's proclaiming these foreign deities. And knowing that St. Paul is a Jew, there's a fascination at this time within Roman culture on all of these different traditions, all of these different mystery cults, if you will, because we see within the Roman and Greek pantheon at this point in time, there's constantly this lumping on of other deities, of other gods. And this will be of note later when we hear St. Paul proclaim the altar of the unknown god. So, contextually speaking, what do we see? Well, we see that the Greeks these Greek Romans, are fascinated by what St. Paul is saying. So they take hold of him and bring him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you present. We want to know about these new deities that you're talking about. This is fascinating to us. 
And the other note of this is in verse 21, when we hear, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So what do they spend all of their time doing? Well, they spend all of their time philosophizing and talking about these new philosophies and pantheons. And what are we going to see? Well, St. Paul is going to recognize this And in doing so, he's not going to go around smashing idols. Rather, he's going to speak to the people of the gospel in a language that they will understand. So moving on to verse 22. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all men life, breath, and everything. And he made from one every nation, of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God in the hope that they might flee after him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that deity is like gold or silver or stone or represented by art in the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from among them, but some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagate and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So delving into St. Paul's sermon within the Areopagus, what do we see? We see, first of all, St. Paul addresses the people directly. And in doing so, he highlights what he sees. So again, we saw earlier when St. Paul arrived in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw that Athens was full of idols. So this indicates to us that St. Paul sees the idolatry in Athens as a bad thing. This is important because sometimes people use this section within Acts to contradict some of St. Paul's writings in many of his epistles, saying that, well, look at how liberal St. Paul is here proclaiming that the altar of this unknown God is really an altar of the one true God. Yet, that misses St. Paul as a pastor. Because as a pastor, what do we see Paul continuing to do? Well, we see him continuing to condescend to the level of the people he's preaching to. So that way, they may have the most optimal ability of receiving the gospel. Because again, we need to remember in the last section what was happening. Well, St. Paul was proclaiming the resurrection. And yet, within the Greek context, they had no understanding of the resurrection. So... What was the assumption that they made at that point? Well, they were fascinated, which then led to St. Paul now giving this proclamation in the Areopagus. But they were also confused because they thought, okay, he's preaching these two deities, Jesus and Anastasis, Jesus and the resurrection. And so even though they were confused in that moment of St. Paul speaking from a Jewish context, what do we see now? we see that St. Paul is going to speak to them through their Gentile context by highlighting their religiosity, so the worship that they're showing to all of these deities, and then turning it on its head subtly. For he says, 
as he passed along and observed the objects of their worship, he found this altar which had the inscription to an unknown god. And in identifying this altar to an unknown god, what do we see St. Paul do? Well, we see St. Paul here recognizes this quality that we're talking about within this Gentile context, because these Greek Romans, what would they do? As I mentioned in the prior section, they'd basically be hedging all of their bets. They'd be like, okay, we don't know all of these divinities that exist, so we're now going to have this altar to an unknown god, just basically having this worship system in place just in case there's a divinity we don't know of yet, so we're making sacrifices to them. And even though this is done kind of in a selfish way, because again, they're trying to hedge their bets and worship to this spirit of this age, what does St. Paul do? St. Paul uses this altar as his jumping-off point to proclaim the gospel to the people. And so we see that he does use a book from the scriptures to continue this point. But what's the book that he uses? Well, it's not the law, or the rest of the law. It's the first part of the law. And it's not the prophets. Why? Because there's no context within a Gentile land of the words of Exodus and so on, because that is a proclamation of the scripture of the Jews. And yet, what do we see within most Near Eastern cultures at that time? Well, we see that there are creation myths. We see that there's an understanding that there were creator gods that brought all into being. And so the language that St. Paul is going to be using here is from Genesis, is from the very creation of the world. And he states when he highlights this unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man. So what's happening here? Well, we see that in St. Paul highlighting this creator God, the one true God, what's he also doing? Well, he's contrasting the one true God with all of these pagan idols that are being worshipped. So it's here that we also see a critique of St. Paul here saying, well, see how liberal St. Paul is with idolatry? That's nowhere in the text. Because within the text, we see that St. Paul is clearly contrasting the one true God with these pagan gods. So he's not saying that this unknown God was really worshipped the whole time as being the one true God. Rather, what he's saying is, compared to the gods which you worship currently, this one true God is more immeasurable and more loving than you could ever know, because he is the one who created heaven and earth, and he is the one who does not dwell in a temple made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. So what's the critique that we see there? Well, if you look at the gods of the nations, what's the tradition that surrounds them in worship? Well, they're being clothed by the people. They're being fed by the people while the people are offering them these sacrifices. And yet, what do we see of the one true God? He has no need of these sacrifices. He has no need of being clothed. He has no need of us creating temples for him because he is the creator of all. And not only is he the creator of all, but he is the source of life to all of his creation, which are here shown as called to worship him. So if God is the creator of all, then what business do we have trying to pretend as if we're the ones who are supposed to minister to his everything? And in fact, if we look at our worship, there's no worship of God that's predicated upon us giving him what he needs. Rather, throughout the entirety of our liturgical services, we see that we're asking God to provide for us what we need. And even in the sacrifice of the Eucharist, what do we see? Well, we don't see a sacrifice being made to God in isolation. The bread, wine, and water that is being offered 
is not an offering to him because that's what God needs to be sustained, like we see with these pagans. Rather, we see that that bread and that wine are revealed to us to be the body and blood of Christ. So it's flipped on its head. Who's making the ultimate sacrifice? Ultimately, it's Christ. It's not us. We are bringing these things before him, and we are co-sacrificing ourselves with him as we participate in his body and his blood. So here's the difference that we see. Because again, within this pagan ritual context, what's happening? We see that the people are caring for these idols in the hope that the gods that are behind them and animating them will give them what they need. And yet within our ritual process, we are continuing to make offerings to God as he is making offerings to us and leading us towards life in him. So there's this reciprocity that's taking place within our relationship with God. God is not sitting here requiring anything from us other than a desire for us to love him. And even when we reject him, even when we stand opposed to him, what do we see throughout the whole of the scriptures? He's still continuing to reach his hand out and embrace us so that we can have eternal life in him. And so this is the contrast that St. Paul is presenting here, because we hear that he made from one, that is one man, every nation of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their habitation that they should seek God in the hope that they might flee after him and find him. So even though in this time we see that there's no recognition within the Gentiles of the one true God, he's still their creator. He created from one man, as we know Adam, the whole of creation, the whole of nations. And even though there's this time of chaos, there's this time of not knowing God, God is the one who's determined in allotted periods and boundaries for the habitation of these nations. So even though they don't know the one true God, ultimately God is the one who is guiding the order within creation that allows for them to exist. That they should ultimately seek after God in the hope that they might flee after him and find him. So why was God preserving the Gentiles and preserving the whole of creation? So that way we may all have the hope of fleeing after him and searching for him and ultimately finding him. So that's the revelation that St. Paul is making here. He's making this proclamation that you have all been sustained, so that way now you may be participants in true sustenance. Yet we hear that he's not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And St. Paul does something very interesting here, is we hear St. Paul is actually quoting a pagan poet. And the poem that he's quoting is actually a poem to Zeus. So what's St. Paul doing here? Well, St. Paul is not saying, well, Zeus is the one true God. No, rather what St. Paul is doing here in proclaiming, for we are indeed his offspring. Is highlighting in the language that the people understand the reality that it's truly the one true God whom they are the offspring of, rather than all of these false deities that they have been worshiping all along. And so moving on, we hear in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or like silver or stone or representations of art for the imaginations of men. So, ultimately, what's the final point that St. Paul is making here? Well, he's making the point that if we're all God's offspring, these other deities that are being worshipped in gold, in silver, stone, representations of art, or in the imaginations of men, are no gods at all. Is they're confined to matter. They're confined to these individual spaces where the people are going to worship them. And yet, the God, who is the creator of all, who we call our Father through Christ, is ultimately the one who's revealing himself to us. And he's not doing this exclusively in the temple. 
Because through the incarnation, well, what have we seen? Well, we've seen through the person of Jesus Christ, God has revealed himself to the whole of creation. And so in verse 30, we hear the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. So who is this man? That God says he's going to judge the nations by? Well, it's Jesus. And again, as we mentioned before, why is Jesus seen as a judge? Well, we understand our tradition that Jesus is the ideal man. He's the perfect person. And the reason for this is he is the only sinless one. So Jesus is never affected by sin, nor does he ever give himself over to it. And Again, if we think about what an ideal is, as I've mentioned before, in itself, it is a judge. Because if we hold something as an ideal, there's a recognition that there's something that's beyond us, something that we're aiming towards, or something that is at least beyond our comprehension. So if Jesus is the ideal man, then that's how he acts as judge. He's not sitting there with a gavel, with a list of all the good and bad things that we've done in our life. Rather, when we are confronted with his ideal, what happens? Well, the experience of that is our judgment. Because all of our shortcomings are then highlighted by being presented with this ultimate ideal. And so what is St. Paul telling these Gentiles that they're called to do? Well, they're called to repent. They're called to turn towards God because God has now revealed himself to them. And what's the sign or the assurance given of this beautiful revelation? Well, ultimately, it's this resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection, the anastasis that St. Paul has been proclaiming, isn't a foreign deity. In fact, he masterfully here ties at the very end of his sermon the reality that this resurrection is the sign and assurance of what God has proclaimed, that through his gospel, that is his proclamation of victory over sin and death, there is now a new path forward for the whole of humanity. And that new path forward is towards salvation and the life of Christ. And we hear finally within the section that now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Because again, the philosophers that we mentioned before, they don't hold this as a concept for them. But we hear that also others said, we'll hear you again about this. So there's not a full reception, yet there's an openness that's taking place in Athens. And so we hear in verse 33 and 34, to kind of round out the section, in this whole chapter for that matter, Paul goes out from among them, so he leaves the Areopagus. But some men join him and believe. So there are believers who receive the gospel. And among them we hear St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, who within our tradition we know to be the first bishop of Athens, and a woman named Damaris, who within our tradition we know to be the wife of St. Dionysius. And along with them, we hear that there are others. So what's the major takeaway that we should be walking away with here? Well, first of all, we see how St. Paul so masterfully presents the love of Christ to a people who do not yet know him. He's not speaking to the people within the context that they'll have no comprehension of. And that's a sign of the wisdom and the love of St. Paul. Because if St. Paul were to come in and preach the gospel through the law and the prophets exclusively, well, these Gentiles would not have any comprehension of what it is he's proclaiming. Rather, they just think he's proclaiming these foreign deities. They'd have a fascination with it, seeing it as another mystery cult, and that would be the end of it. And yet, using a context that they would understand, using a language with which they understood, what do we see? Well, we see that even though not everyone who is listening to St. Paul received the gospel, the door is open for some, and there are others who also receive it fully. Now, we're also told that there are those who reject the gospel, because that's always going to be the case. 
but through St. Paul condescending and lowering himself to proclaim a language that the people understand, well, what do we see? We see that not only is the door open for some, but we see that others walk through that door with an openness of heart. And that allows for the church to be established in Athens, because again, the individuals who are highlighted here, St. Dionysios and his wife, St. Damaris, we see that the foundation is here laid for the church in Athens to be fostered, to prosper and grow. So what is the natural result of St. Paul's actions here? We'll see that more people receive the gospel. Now, again, as we mentioned, it'd be easy for St. Paul to come in and say, you guys are worshiping demons, smash all these idols, get rid of them now. But what fruit would that bear in leading people to Christ? If, again, the context and the language that they're speaking is that we're worshiping these idols because this is what we do. If St. Paul comes in and says, no, break all of these things that you hold dear, well, what would their reaction be? The reaction would be to close themselves off to the gospel and probably kill St. Paul. And yet, in the way that St. Paul preaches to these people, and the way that St. Paul is now shown ministering to these people, he's doing everything that he can to take a step back from his understanding, his presuppositions, maybe, and free himself to be guided by the Spirit exclusively. And through the guidance of the Spirit, we see that he presents the gospel in this nuanced way. It might not be clean from our perspective, because again, what would a clean way of presenting the gospel be? Well, St. Paul would systematically present to the people, this is Jesus who rose from the dead, who was prophesied by the prophets, and everything that we do believe. And yet, this would be useless for these people, even though it's true because they have no way of understanding everything else that comes along with that narrative. So St. Paul's beautiful way of relaying the gospel to the people is by lowering himself to where they are, speaking to them directly in a context that they will understand, and then ultimately offering them the love of Christ and the path forward towards repentance so that way they may receive this beautiful gift, the resurrection. Because the resurrection, as we're told, is the assurance of all these things. The assurance that we are all the children of the one true God. And this is the seal that we have in our faith. That all we are striving towards is true. Because if God didn't become man and dwell among us, suffer, die, offering his life for the world, and ultimately rise from the dead, well, then there is no hope for us. There is nothing for us to strive for. Yet we proclaim every single time that we exclaim the creed, that we look to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. And the reason we do this is because we truly believe as Christians that in Christ's resurrection, there's the hope of resurrection for us. And this doesn't exclusively mean that, okay, even though I'm going to die, then I'm going to have the same life that I have here in a different age. That's not what we're looking towards. Rather, what we're looking towards is the fulfillment of a life in Christ. And that's why within the lives of the saints, we see that these people who have become sanctified are revealed to be participating in that life while they're in this life. And as they die, what do we see? Well, through the association with that saint still with their body, that we see with our veneration of relics and the miracles that happen surrounding them, well, we see that that life continues. That life is not pushed off into a future date while their soul goes off into the sky somewhere waiting to return to the body. Rather, there's always this association with God's holy ones and the whole of who they are which includes body and soul. Because again, we're not looking for this disembodied ideal. Rather, we are who we are, and that is the whole of who God made in his image and called to strive towards his likeness. So the lesson that we can learn from St. Paul is that 
when we proclaim the gospel, if that's what we're called to do with words, we need to be very careful to do that in a way that people can understand. Because if we're just looking to dunk on people and take certain quotes from the gospel to prove points that bolster our egos, then we've missed the point entirely. Because the point of proclaiming the gospel isn't to prove ourselves right. The point of proclaiming the gospel is to lead people towards Christ. And this is what we see at the core of everything that St. Paul is doing. And we know that because the manifestation of this is seen in the church in Athens being formed, fostered, and growing. Because the door has now been opened for some to receive it. And those who have rejected it, even them, they will have time to receive it. So it's the prayer and the hope that we all have, that we may have the same clarity to receive the words of the gospel when we meditate upon the scriptures, to receive the message of who Christ is and how he's calling us to live. Because if we're not trying to embody this in our lives, again, we're missing the point. Because the scriptures are not something for us to just wrestle with in an intellectual sense and then check that box and move on to the next thing. Rather, the scriptures are our way of attempting to understand how we're called to live, ultimately, in Christ. So as we aim for Christ with the whole of our being, what are we called to do? Well, as St. Paul lays out very clearly in the end of the sermon here, we hear that we're called to repent. Because we're always going to fall short. We're always going to have shortcomings. And when we acknowledge those shortcomings and reorient our life, well, what happens? We get a little bit further down that way in Christ. And that's why we're called to continual repentance. Because every single time that we identify the shortcomings that are in each and every one of us, lay them aside and reorient our life so that way we can do what it is that we're called to do, will we see this forward momentum that continues. And ultimately, where is that momentum called to lead us? What's well, called to lead us the kingdom of Christ. Because that's the goal of all Christians. And it's not only the goal for us to be there alone. Rather, it's our goal and desire to wholeheartedly proclaim the gospel in the way that we live our life. So that way it may be revealed to others who have not yet received it. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. Until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming weeks, I invite you to see for yourself the depth of meaning that they can present to us all. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for this Bible study, links can be found in the description below. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in this Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live the life that Christ calls us to live through the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End every Sunday for Orthros starting at 8.30 a.m. and Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find an Orthodox church near you. As always, thank you for listening and may St. John the Forerunner continue to give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight.